All right, sifting through the various narratives after yesterday's, uh, well, post-mortem on this tragic situation that happened on the Danforth Sunday night, and, uh, of course, with the family coming out with their missive, identifying the son and uh, the background and all that he had endured with mental illness and so on and so forth. Uh, Then you've got the other aspect of things, gun crime or this type of gun readily available by somebody who probably uh, should not have had one. I think that's a pretty safe assumption, but... You know, so you've got the uh, folks who are claiming guns are the issue and ought to be uh, somehow taken out of the equation, even to the point where the Toronto Star has editorialized that uh, Canada should ban private ownership of handguns and place greater restrictions on other firearms. But the private ownership of handguns, they say it's time, which is interesting because uh, by the same token, you scroll down, there's an opinion piece in the same paper from the former attorney general here in the province, Michael Bryant, who says the public outcry in Toronto these days about gun crime is untethered from reality and torqued by fear from which bad decisions get made. If you knew someone involved in a plane crash, he writes, you'd be suddenly afraid of flying. But the statistical likelihood of a plane crash is exponentially lower than a motor vehicle accident. So it is with gun violence in Toronto today. Well, they're you know, competing. They're sort of dueling it out on their own pages. But he does go on to say that there is technology and capacity to track both firearms and ammunition. And uh, that may lend itself to uh, a reasonable discussion if you can chip a gun. Because there's another argument and an opinion piece that surfaced about how guns uh, are readily available and they're not always trafficked in from the states. Whereas it used to be about five years ago, 75% of the firearms trafficked came from the states and now about half originate from domestic sources and they say there are some people for whom uh it's become like a cottage industry one man sold 47 guns and made over a hundred grand in a five-month period and he did this legally so they're buying legally selling illegally so how is that allowed to happen and if you do something like chip the gun and a guy has to admit he either sold it which would be illegal or he uh, had it stolen, then you'd be able to identify where the damn thing is by some way, shape, or form. I don't know, GPS locator. Or you just limit the number of purchases any individual can have. I mean, 47 would be a flag, wouldn't it? I would think so. And, you know, stiffer sentences to deter anybody breaking these particular laws. I mean, real serious, let's go draconian, medieval on their asses. But uh, again, you know, to ban them all outright, I can't see that happening, or at least I wouldn't want to see that happening. That's uh, my opinion on that matter. On the matter of the mental health issue and whether or not, you know, it comes a time where somebody, because you feel that it's irretrievable or they can't be helped, as the family said in their own uh, positioning of what happened with their kid, how about having that person committed We've heard it could be difficult to do, and uh, so you don't have the ultimate control or say in the matter. Did somebody drop the ball in that regard? Here's Precious in Mississauga. Go ahead. You're on the Oakley Show, Precious. Hi. Um, I'm the wife of an, um, an Army veteran. Uh, he, was, uh, he had a psychotic break in November 2016. He ended up in the United States and uh, faced some felony charges and was found not guilty by reason of insanity. So he is now institutionalized. Uh, we live in Mississauga. <laughs> And um, from my perspective, it wasn't for a lack of help. Like, we went everywhere. We went to our family doctor. He went willingly. After every episode he had, he went willingly to the family doctor. 
Uh, we had to try to get a crisis team out to our house, and that didn't help. I tried to get the police to come and help, and that didn't help. We ourselves try to exhaust every avenue and I, I i don't know i mean you tell me what else we could have done i mean the system is broken i i don't know how to fix it i don't have the answers for you but it was so much um i was so frustrated that i actually went right up to chief evans uh, at a community event and walked up to her and face to face told her my situation and i said you know it took the judicial system in the united states for my husband who lives in mississauga to get help even though we willingly went to the police and the doctors and the crisis teams uh, to to get him diagnosed and uh, she said she pointed to at the time it was Dr. Eric Hoskins who's the Minister of Health mm-hmm. so I also went to him and I spoke to him and he kind of just like, his department just handed me a bunch of resources which we had already exhausted that you know were useless to us so I don't know what to tell you I can't speak for the family of this suspect but I know from my perspective we tried. Okay, no, <laughs> we and see, this is... Sure it wouldn't get to that point, and unfortunately, it took a, an episode um, that I never knew he was going to turn violent, but in his defense, he thought he was defending himself, so I, I will make that clear to people. He didn't just go out and randomly try to hurt somebody. He thought he was defending himself. That was his psychosis, but it took that event for him to get help, and he's in the United States. He's in a state institute in Ohio. Right, you know. but he was found not criminally responsible. Did you say that? That's right. Yes. He okay. Was found not criminally but isn't that boy? Uh, and that's a curiosity to me that it had to go that far as it is to you. You uh, just said so that uh, you know he had to break the law in order to get the yeah. help and to be. And instant- let me tell you something as well with the police. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was very difficult for me because as a woman and as his wife. A lot of people read between the lines where there was nothing to read. I wouldn't be surprised if I tried to access my police reports and found that they believed I was being abused or something, as opposed to just listening to what I was saying. I would literally tell the police, I need your help to have my husband formed so I can take him to the hospital. He's having an episode. He needs to be diagnosed. And they would often say, well, why don't you get a restraining order in case you're worried he's going to hurt you? Uh, then if, he, if we arrest him, then he goes through the judicial system. We can help him that way. And I said, I'm not interested in criminalizing my husband who is not abusing me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I had to face that. So, I mean, one time they separated us and they, they sat me down and said, listen, if he's hurting you, you need to tell us so we can help you get out. And they said, you're really not listening to me. You know, <laughs> I need to have him formed so he can get diagnosed and... I mean, I, 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 I can talk for hours from all the things we went through. I mean, this spanned eight years from the time he was discharged from the Army until he was arrested. Uh, eight years, no diagnosis. It was, it, it, was a, it was a trip, to say the least. <laughs> now, he w- had been charged with attempted murder and felonious assault, if I've got it, if I got it right. Uh, I'm that reading about correct, the case yeah. in, in Ohio. In Ohio, that's right. This was November 2000. Uh, I have to say, though, like, I think initially they weren't sure what to make of what happened, so they upgraded the charge. So at the end of the day, we didn't decide to fight the charge because it wasn't about the charges. And the, the prosecution, even the arresting officers, even the judge, we were all in agreement he needed help. Like, there, I don't think there was anybody who thought he deserved to go to prison. Like, it was very clear he was in a psychotic episode. Um, so, sorry, I, well, you, you were going to ask a question, I interrupted, I apologize. Well, no, no, that's fine, you know, I appreciate this, uh, you know, this is the whole point I'm trying to make here. Families where they get flummoxed by the system, is the system 
failing us? Is it uh, the individuals who fail to recognize that there's something so severe in their loved ones that they they should take that step? But if you're telling me, as I heard from Amanda earlier in Peterborough, you can't have someone committed or somewhere along the line, the system puts up a hurdle. I asked a family doctor and he said, well, I'm not sure there's enough care to have him institutionalized. And he himself has said, you know, something's not right with me. And, and the doctor said, well, I'm not quite sure if it's enough to institutionalize him. So I asked the police for help, and they said, I'm not quite sure either. It was to the point where I was about to go to the Justice of the Peace, and unfortunately, the incident happened. Uh, because you can go yourself to the Justice of the Peace and make your case, but from speaking to other family members who have had this done, they don't always believe you. It's all very anecdotal, right? Because there's no medical history, <laughs> so because he hasn't been diagnosed. So that's sort of, and again, like the frustrating part was, I find that the frontline response workers tend to be the family doctor who is not qualified to diagnose serious mental health illnesses, or it's the police who I, their threshold as the previous callers have said is, do you want to hurt yourself? Do you want to hurt somebody else? Or do you want to willingly come to the hospital with with us? Mm -hmm. So these are the two people that tend to respond to these types of incidents. And, um, if they don't meet the threshold, they kind of just walk away and say, well, our hands are tied. And so, again, I said, I asked Chief Evans to her face, and I said, you know, my husband's in a hospital in the United States. My kids and I are in Canada. You know, our family has been torn apart because nobody listened to us for eight years. I'm reading he could be um, there for a maximum of 11 years. No, he's actually, um, he's on his way to being conditionally released. He's doing very well. He's actually found the right cocktail of medication. Um, he's doing very well. He's been doing, ther- I mean, he's, he, what else can you do? I and mean, he's willing to get help. Right. Well he, he served two, he, Precious, he served two tours of duty in Iraq? In Iraq, yeah. yeah. And he was there for five, he served in the Army for five years. Right. And PTSD. Rather than getting him help, they discharged him, which is a whole other story. <laughs> right. So in um, terms of Canadian mental health, though, uh, you say you got stymied because there was nowhere further up the food chain that was willing to accept his uh, condition, his situation, and uh, and treat him. And so he was, uh, you know, ultimately uh, left to his own devices, went one day out of the house, uh, took a change of clothes, a cell phone, went to Ohio, visited his brother, allegedly attempted to murder his brother, and uh, for which he was charged, but found not criminally insane. It's a wild story. I really appreciate your joining. Yeah. And unfortunately, like I said, Chief Evans pointed to Eric Hoskins, Eric Hoskins pointed to Chief Evans. Right. And Buck passing. And, you know, it's, it's what can you do? <laughs> Well, this is something that needs to be addressed. I, I suppose I'm hearing these stories. I mean, very, very heartfelt anecdotes, and yours is a, a story of some renown, as I'm getting it here from reading uh, the stories in the in the various media. And, and just to ask, if there's one more thing I just want to point out. People point out if this is, in fact, a mental health case, how is he able to, he looks fine when you look at him. Uh, there was a doctor on your uh, channel last night, and he said, well, just because you have a delusion doesn't mean you lose your skills. So just because he looks well on the outside and he's able to carry a gun and things like that doesn't mean he's not delusional about his surroundings. So you don't lose your skills or your ability to walk or your ability to perceive that there's people in front of you. That's not how psychosis works. So I I kind of just want to reiterate that point because I think people think if you see somebody they can't be mentally ill because they look okay on the outside. I got you. Well, in in your husband's case, uh, apparently he couldn't even remember uh, what he had done. I appreciate it very much. Boy, this is a great story, and thanks for sharing it this afternoon. All right. Thank you for having me. All the best, Precious. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Well, uh, interesting, and I appreciate uh, Mike and Mary also uh, 
outsourcing the story as she was talking to us. I didn't know it was a, a celebrated account. I'd uh, forgotten about this particular instance from back several years ago. We'll come back. Sue Ann Levy will shed some light on her perspective uh, as far as the uh, recent spate of gunplay in the city is concerned and certainly the situation along the Danforth the other night. She's up next on The Oakley Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.